Hello and welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different than the rest. These past few months, we've taken a deep dive into the history of Rome, their politics, religion, and culture. Our podcast will now be taking a break from Rome and transitioning from the era of classical antiquity to the medieval era. The medieval era is how historians have traditionally described the era between the fall of Rome in the late 5th century up until the end of the Renaissance in the late 15th century. It corresponds to what is now known as the post-classical period. As we enter into this new course of study, I thought it would be fitting to zoom out and do an introductory episode to five of the key factions of this exciting new world. Now you may say to yourself, Doug, how could you possibly boil down the intricate histories, cultures, and traditions of the hundreds of nations, provinces, and city-states that existed during this 1,000-year time period into one 20-minute podcast episode? Well, you know, that's a good point. And normally, it would be impossible. Luckily for me, a popular 20-year-old strategy video game, the same game that inspired my love for history when I was just six years old, has actually tried its darndest to feature in their game some of the most notable medieval factions. And they've tried to give each faction unique advantages and disadvantages that reflect the real-life history of those nations. The game I'm talking about is Age of Empires 2. In this game, you choose the medieval faction you want to play as, and you build cities, plant farms, mine gold, fortify your town, research technologies, and eventually you gather enough resources and men to send out raiders, armies, merchants, or holy men to vanquish your foes and strengthen your allies. In this episode, I will be using five of the civilizations featured in Age of Empires 2 and the abilities they are given in the game as a jumping off point to cover key factions of the early medieval era following the decline of Rome. This list and these brief synopses are by no means comprehensive, even to the game, which has 42 civilizations, let alone to history itself. So please forgive me for being pithy. As always, I encourage you to use these episodes as your own jumping off point for further research, That's why I'll include sources in the description. If you like this format, in two weeks I'll release another episode discussing five more medieval factions. Okay, so the first faction that I'm covering today is the Byzantines. In future episodes, as we study the Byzantines more, you'll find them to be weirdly familiar to you. This is because the Byzantines are just the continuation of the Romans. The people of this empire even called themselves Romans. It was modern historians who created the term Byzantine for them, coined because of their capital of Byzantium, later known as Constantinople, and now Istanbul. The Byzantines are considered separate from the Roman Empire because they were a Greek-speaking, mostly Christian empire that continued on in Greece and Turkey through the Middle Ages after the western half of the Roman Empire collapsed. The Byzantines did eventually recover much of the western half on a couple of occasions. Their civilization roughly existed from AD 500 to 1453. In Age of Empires II, the Byzantines are a powerful defensive faction. Players who use the Byzantines enjoy stronger buildings with better line of sight. 
Additionally, the archers and heavy cavalry of the Byzantines, uh, known as cataphracts, are some of the most dangerous units in the game. On top of this, the Byzantine defensive soldiers, aka trash units, are extremely cheap, and the Byzantine fire ships are incredibly deadly, with longer range and more rapid attacks than other ships. These in-game bonuses translate nicely to the Byzantines of real life. You'll recall in my episode from last year called Turkey Time, we discussed the defenses of Constantinople. A key point from that episode was we learned that of the 24 sieges of Constantinople, only 3 to 5 were successful, perhaps the best win record in the ancient world. It's easy to understand why. The walls of Constantinople were 40 feet high, 20 feet thick, and had 96 towers, spanning a length of 3.4 miles. But fortifications weren't enough to protect the vast swaths of valuable land the Byzantines lay claim to across the Mediterranean. Thus, the Byzantines relied on a highly mobile, professional army. An army like this would have been impossible for the original Romans, because key technologies like the stirrup weren't invented yet. According to WeaponsAndWarfare.com, quote, The core of the Byzantine army was cavalry and fast-moving foot archers. Speed and firepower had become the trademarks of the new Romans. A typical heavy cavalryman was armed with a long lance, a short bow, a small axe, broadsword, a dagger, and a small shield. He wore a steel helmet, a plate mail corslet that reached from neck to thigh, leather gauntlets, and high boots. His horse's head and breast might be protected with light armor as well. By the later empire, armor for both rider and horse became almost complete, especially in the frontline units. The infantrymen who usually accompanied the cavalry in the field were either a lightly armored archer who used a powerful longbow, a small shield, and a light axe, or an unarmored skirmisher armed with javelin and shield. Because most Byzantine operations depended on speed, tactically as well as strategically, heavy infantry seldom ventured beyond the camps or fortifications. Quote. Notably, the Varangian Guard, who replaced the Praetorian Guard, see episode 29, they were dressed in full plate and had two-handed axes. They were the exception, however. Half of their job was to be intimidating. Now, the Byzantines' defenses also stretched to the sea domain. Their navy used Greek fire to protect their harbors and trade routes. This Greek fire was an ancient napalm fired from a hose. Its recipe was so secret that no one ever knew the entire thing. And with the fall of the Byzantine Empire, the secret was lost for good. The fire was so caustic that it would burn even when doused with water or plunged into the depths. The second faction that we'll look at today is the Goths. The Goths were a Germanic tribe that lived on the Roman frontier around the Danube River. They existed from the 1st century to the 7th century AD. In the game, the Goths are special because of their almost arrow-proof warriors, known as Huscarls. Huscarl comes from the old Nordic word for housecarl, meaning literally a houseman, which is a term for a manservant. This term referenced the ancient bodyguards of Danish kings. In the game, these warriors, along with other infantry units, are cheap and strong for the Goths, and they can be massed into huge hordes. 
Enemy fortifications and defenders melt before the mighty infantry rush. The Gothic faction's weakness in the game is their inability to defend themselves very well. They can't build strong stone walls or towers, and so they have to be very aggressive with their infantry. These features are pretty true to real life. The first century Roman historian Tacitus writes about the Goths. He says, quote, Their numbers are so great. Cold and hunger they are accustomed to by their climate and soil. Iron is not plentiful among them, as may be inferred from the nature of their weapons. Swords or broad lances are seldom used, but they generally carry a spear which has an iron blade, short and narrow, but so sharp and manageable that, as occasion requires, they employ it either in close or distant fighting. This spear and a shield are all the armor of the cavalry. The foot have, besides missile weapons, several to each man, which they hurl to an immense distance. They are either naked or lightly covered with a small mantle, and have no pride in equipage. Their shields are only ornamented with the choicest colors. Few are provided with a coat of mail, and scarcely here and there one with a cask or a helmet. Their horses are neither remarkable for beauty, neither swiftness. Their principal strength, on the whole, consists in their infantry. Hence, in an engagement, these are intermixed with the cavalry. So well accordant with the nature of equestrian combat is the agility of the foot soldiers, whom they select from the whole body of their youth and place in the front of the line." And so we learn that even in the first century, these Goths were known for their strong and hardy, cheaply equipped, fast-moving infantry. Centuries later, the Goths would put this infantry to its most famous use, the sacking of Rome. In the 5th century, after decades of Roman inaction in regards to the Huns' advances, the Western Goths, known as Visigoths, grew weary of their alliance with the Romans. King Alaric eventually encouraged his men to invade the Roman heartlands in Italy. In AD 409, they sacked the city of Rome and then moved on to conquer Gaul. The Romans ceded these lands to the Goths, and over the years, the Visigoths extended their empire from Gaul all the way across the Iberian Peninsula to modern-day Portugal. Meanwhile, the Eastern Goths, known as Ostrogoths, were living in Switzerland at the time, and they had their chance in the spotlight when they themselves conquered Rome in AD 493. The Byzantines eventually booted them out in 536. Despite being the first nation to invade Rome, the Goths actually did much to preserve Roman language and customs in Western Europe. They even converted to Christianity, albeit they ended up siding with the Arian heretics. They were later kicked out of their lands by the Franks and the Lombards. In the 8th century, they were finally annihilated by Islamic invaders from North Africa. A final note on the Goths, a listener asked me if they should pursue a Goth girl at their school. Well, you should be aware how Tacitus describes the Goths. He says, Their eyes are stern and blue. They have ruddy hair, large bodies, powerful in sudden exertions, but impatient of toil and labor, least of all capable of sustaining thirst and heat. So, if you want a girl who's big, strong, lazy, and can't handle getting too hot, then I say go for it. The third faction I want to look at today are the Huns. According to History.com, quote, The Huns were nomadic warriors who terrorized much of Europe and the Roman Empire in the 4th and 5th centuries AD. 
No one knows exactly where the Huns came from. Some scholars believe they originated from the nomad Ziognu people who entered the historical record in 318 BC and terrorized China during the Qin Dynasty and during the later Han Dynasty. The Great Stone Dragon was reportedly summoned to help Mulan fight the Huns. Oh, oh wait, sorry, I read that wrong. I mean, the Great Wall of China was reportedly built to help protect against the mighty Ziognu. Close quote. Other historians believe the Huns originated from Kazakhstan, or elsewhere in Asia. Either way, they arrived in southeastern Europe in 370 AD. From there, they launched a reign of terror that lasted 70 years. Their reign came to an end when the Romans teamed up with the Visigoths to stop the Hunnic invasion of Gaul in 453, and when the Persians teamed up with the Turks to stop the Hunnic invasion of Iran in 483. In the game, choosing the Huns faction gives the player the ability to send out powerful cavalry raiders and archers very quickly without even having to build houses for the soldiers to live in. These advantages were true of the Huns in real life. The Huns mustered bafflingly massive hordes of horsemen at an alarming rate. They were so fast and so deadly, some Roman Christians believed that they were devils arrived straight from hell. What was the secret to their speed? Well, in the grassy steppes of Central Asia, there were a ton of horses. The Huns traveled with a lot of these. So many that a single rider would go through multiple ponies in a single day. This gave each horse time to rest and recover, while the rider never had to slow their pace. The Huns were also pioneers of using the stirrup in battle. Originally invented in China in the 3rd century, perhaps by the Huns themselves, the Huns mastered the art of using the device in warfare. They employed it to make sure their spear-wielding and bow-wielding riders were incredibly deadly on horseback, something not possible before. The Huns were also expert fletchers. Their recurved composite bows made of seasoned birch, bone, and glue were far superior to anything used in the West. Standing in their stirrups, a Hun could fire forward, to the sides, and to the rear. Their arrows could strike a man 80 yards away and seldom missed their mark. In addition to this tactic, the Huns would also use their herding skills to lasso their enemies on the battlefield, brutally tearing them off their horses and dragging them to a violent death. In some respects, this makes the Huns like the first cowboys. On top of all this, the Huns truly did not require houses. They slept in tents, carried in their horse saddlebags, or they wouldn't even set them up at all. It was reported that the Huns were able to actually sleep on their horse's back. I guess that's what happens when you've been riding horses every day from your third birthday on. A final note. A listener asked me if he should date the horse girl at school. I think that's fine, but just be careful not to call her Hun in front of your goth friends. The fourth faction that I'll look at today are the Persians. The Persians are one of the world's oldest civilizations. Their fertile homelands in modern-day Iran, bordering the Persian Gulf, have been occupied since before history was even written. Their earliest city dates all the way back to 4395 BC. They came to prominence as a wealthy vassal state of the Assyrian Empire, but when the Babylonians teamed up with the Medes to overthrow the Assyrians, 
the Persians took their chance to overthrow the Medes. From then on, under the direction of Cyrus the Great and his descendants, the Persians became one of the world's richest and most influential nations, the Achaemenid Empire. You may remember them from our episode on Athens and Sparta last year. The Achaemenids were later conquered by the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great, who formed the Seleucid Empire. This empire gave way to the Parthians, which were a new Persian power. They became the mortal enemy to the Romans. According to worldhistory.org, quote, the Parthian army was the most effective fighting force of the age, primarily due to its cavalry and the perfection of a technique known as the Parthian shot, characterized by mounted archers feigning retreat who would turn and shoot back at advancing adversaries. Check out videos of people doing the Parthian shot on YouTube. It's insane. Anyway, the Romans eventually wore down the Parthians, but this only led to the Persian people establishing a new state, the Sasanian Empire, in AD 224. The Sasanian Empire stood till the 7th century AD and is considered the height of Persian rule and culture. It built upon the best aspects of the Achaemenid and Parthian empires and improved upon them. It stretched from Mesopotamia to India and from the Caspian Sea to the Persian Gulf, encompassing the modern nations of Iraq, Iran, and Afghanistan. They fought the Romans and later the Byzantines for control of modern Syria, Turkey, Palestine, Israel, Egypt, and Arabia. Even the Muslim conquerors of Persia in the 7th century and the Turkish conquerors in the 11th century would be moved and transformed by the technological, architectural, and religious achievements of Persia. In Age of Empires II, the player with the Persian faction is given a head start with food and wood resources, presumably because of how rich the land of Iran is. The player also has incredibly productive economic buildings, town centers and docks, and they're able to train battle elephants for war. Are these bonuses true to the Sasanian Empire? As far as my research is concerned, yeah. The Sasanian Empire truly did have incredible economic output. Its first king, Shapur I, was a gifted administrator and prolific city builder. He commissioned numerous building projects across his dominion. His architects pioneered the domed entrance and the minaret. They revived the use of the kanat, which was an underground aqueduct, and the yakal, which is an ancient ice-storing building. They also built wind towers into their buildings, which is a clever invention that allows for the ventilation and cooling of structures. So these incredible innovations might be what were used to justify the Persians' economic efficiency in the game. But did the Persians truly send battle elephants into war? Well, according to ironicaonline.org, the answer is yes. Quote, Until the advent of Islam in the 7th century, the Sasanian army in the field was regularly accompanied by elephants. Unlike the Carthaginians and Numidians who used smaller African forest elephants, the Sasanians, like many of the Hellenistic armies of the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, employed larger Indian species, Elephus maximus. These animals were procured from their Indian allies, since breeding elephants within Persia seems to have been difficult. The Sasanian military 
deployed these elephants in siege warfare and more infrequently in set-piece engagements where the beasts had a psychological impact on enemies not accustomed to facing them. Elephants were otherwise used for pioneering slash engineering duties and presumably for general logistics tasks, close quote. The fifth and final faction I'll look at today are the Turks. Originally from the steppes of Kazakhstan, the Turks converted to Islam in the 10th and 11th centuries and began a westward migration. They were skilled horsemen and were often hired by the Sasanians and later Persian states to fight in their wars. The Turkish migration eventually brought them into Persia proper, where they absorbed much of the Persian culture and even used their language as the language of their government. In 1051, the Turks started their own empire, the Great Seljuk Empire. This was a Sunni Muslim state that was ethnically Turkish with Persian customs. At its height, this empire stretched from Kazakhstan and the borders of China in the east all the way to the Levant and Anatolia in the west. These western borders brought them into frequent conflict with the Byzantines and eventually the rest of Europe as they would become the targets of the First Crusade. Their dreams of empire were put on hold in the 13th century when they were subjugated by the Mongol horde. It would be a hundred years before the Turks re-emerged as a great power known as the Ottoman Empire. This empire would defeat the Byzantines in 1453 pushing into Europe, where they eventually held an empire comprising 877,888 square miles, extending over three continents and playing a major part in the European political sphere in addition to being the official caliphate of the Muslim world. They controlled most of the world's trade and blocked Europe off from eastern markets, which in turn prompted the Age of Exploration. The Ottoman Empire would last all the way up until World War I. In the game, the player who chooses the Turkish faction gets super beefy cavalry archers, and the player is able to upgrade their light cavalry for free, and they're given powerful gunpowder units, hand cannoneers and bombards, which can be made more cheaply and with greater health and additional range than their enemies. These bonuses are true to the real-life Turkish Empire. Like their steppe nomad forebears and their Hunnic and Cuman cousins, the Seljuk Turks were skilled horsemen accustomed to shooting bows from horseback. In the late 14th century, the Ottomans were one of the earliest adopters of gunpowder in warfare. According to Guns for the Sultan, Military Power and the Weapons Industry in the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, quote, preceded both their European and Middle Eastern adversaries in establishing centralized and permanent troops specialized in the manufacturing and handling of firearms. Close quote. The first of these firearms used effectively were the massive artillery pieces innovated by a smith from Hungary named Orban. Orban had offered to make giant bronze guns for the Byzantines, but they had no money to hire him. So Orban went to Mehmed II, Sultan of the Turks, who was more than happy to order a battery of the giant bombards. Orban told the Sultan, quote, I can cast a cannon of bronze with the capacity of the stone you want. I have examined the walls of Constantinople in great detail. I can shatter to dust not only these walls with the stones from my gun, but the very walls of Babylon itself, close quote.
A few short months later, Mehmed II would use those very guns to breach the walls of Constantinople for the first time in the city's history. Mehmed would put an end to the Byzantine Empire and declare himself Caesar. In the following decades, his army would continue using gunpowder in new formats. For example, Mehmed II took his standing army of professional bodyguards, known as the Janissaries, who were expert archers, and he armed them and made them drill with firearms instead. According to Islamic gunpowder empires, Ottomans, Safavids, and Mughals, these Janissaries became, quote, perhaps the first standing infantry force equipped with firearms in the world, close quote. They were the forerunners of the musketeers of later armies. And that concludes our episode for today. Today I introduced you to five of the great factions that arose following the decline of the Roman Empire. One of those factions, the Byzantines, was a direct successor of Rome. Another faction, the Sasanian Persians, was a great rival to Rome and later the Byzantines. The other three factions, the Goths, Huns, and Turks, were the young upstarts that had a hand in killing Rome. Learning about all these factions gives you some context into the world that followed Rome a time period that can be confusing and hazy in many people's minds. Obviously, the Romans left huge sandals to fill, but these powers managed to forge vast empires, innovate new technologies, and leave a legacy of their own. A legacy with echoes still found in geopolitics of today. If you had to pick one of these civilizations to be the ruler of, which would you pick? In Age of Empires 2, I like to play as the Persians. There are few things more satisfying than surprising your enemy with a horde of battle elephants on their doorstep. In real life though, I'd have to go with the Byzantines. As both a Christian and a Romabu who loves Mediterranean weather and cuisine, the Byzantines represent the combination of many of my favorite things. Feel free to comment your answers in the attached poll. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a 5-star review and share this with a friend. For more information on this topic, check out the sources listed in the description. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you.